0: There's a word in the Buddhist faith that means suffering. It's this word dukkha. But at its core, originally, what this word meant was far from home. This word means far from home. And there's a German word, "fernway," which literally is far woe is that when you are far from that which is safe and home for you, it is is a word that means the woe that you experience when you are far from what you feel is home. For people from Wales, in Welsh, there is this word hyraith. Now hyraith is hard to define. It's this combination of nostalgia and homesickness, but a soul-level longing for a home you cannot go to right now fascinating to have, in essence, the same or similar words pop up in multiple cultures that we have a hard time defining easily in English. You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, it's this chapter about heroes of the faith. And, it's, and, at, the, and at 13 verses in, it, the author of Hebrews talks about what made them so impactful these heroes of the faith, what caused them to have such influence at their times, in their cultures, and the people around them? In verse 13 it says, all of these people, these heroes, died in faith without having received the promises from a distance they saw and greeted them. As in promises from God, promises for peace. And They had peace, but not all the way. There's like this already not yet nature of life here on earth. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they left behind here now, they would have the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. And what's fascinating about these people in Hebrews 11 is that there they operated on a different level from a faraway country That they were ultimately citizens of heaven but that made them better citizens here. Do you see that? Like if they were first and foremost here now of the culture of the time they wouldn't have had the same impact but because they were citizens of heaven first they were able to be a a degree or two removed to see the here and the now and have more impact here and now. So the fact that they were citizens of a faraway country made them better citizens here. C.S. Lewis said it this way in the weight of glory. And speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. This is C.S. Lewis talking. I am almost committing an indecency. I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism. Our real goal is elsewhere. When they want to convince you that earth is your home, Notice how they said about it. They begin by trying to persuade you that earth can be made into heaven. And once you see this, that, that this, this sales pitch, that earth can be made into heaven, you see it appear in all kinds of sales pitches. If you buy this car, earth will be made into heaven. If you buy this product, if you go on this vacation, if you vote for this candidate, earth will be made into heaven. You will have heaven here now. Now, it is the goal of people of faith to make heaven, like little appearances, little presences of God here and heaven here now, bringing heaven into earth, but but that's never fully going to realize in that way. Our story today is of Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they were literally far from their home. They had been taken from Judah to Babylon, and they were in essence, enslaved there. Now, they grew in influence there, that they were, became important people, significant people, people of influence, but they were, in essence, slaves there. And so they were literally far from home, but they were also spiritually far from home. And that they were trying to, they were, the attempt was to not only bring these young men into Babylon, but to bring Babylon into the young men. The, the, there was an intentional attempt to influence them with Babylonian culture. And so at its core, what the book of Daniel is about is how Daniel, they tried to influence him with Babylonian culture and how Daniel inevitably influenced culture. I'm not going to say that culture is wrong. We find ourselves in all kinds of cultures inherent. Like we, we try to have a culture here at this church. We try to have a culture at the staff at this church. You have cultures in your home. You have cultures at work. You have all kinds of... I'm going to speak about like the larger culture at play that we find ourselves in. I think that we, if you, if you are someone who follows Jesus, you are in some regard far from your home. And I think this, this homesickness, this Fernway, this higher is a lot of what people find so unbelievable about God. Because I think people, they look at life, they look at Culture, they look at pain and suffering and they say, This can't be right. There has to be something going on here. This is not the home I signed up for. And so they say that this can't be, faith can't be real. I think this homesickness is both what can make you incredibly impactful to your culture around you and what oftentimes people have a hard time wrestling with before coming to faith. And so as we dive into the book of Daniel, be looking at those two things both how Babylon tried to influence Daniel but how Daniel successfully influenced Babylon. We're going to start in verse 1. Daniel 1, chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master Ashpenaz to bring some of the Israelites, of the royal family, and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, enculturated, the king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years. So at the end of that time, they would be stationed in the king's court. So what you have here is you have the Babylonian Empire comes in, they, they, uh, the siege in uh, Judah, the kingdom of Judah, and they take the best of the best. It says they took the handsome and the intelligent, those of royal birth, and they brought them to Babylon, and they put them under the master of the house, Ashpenaz, and it says that they taught them all of the literature and languages of the Chaldeans for three years. That is an intentional trying to, like, all right, yeah, we, we're bringing it, bring you into Babylon, but we're also going to put Babylon into you. You are going to be like us. You're going to be one of us. You're going to operate like we operate. You will see the world like we see the world. I will say that it is, if, if you see, start to see parallels in our daily life, right, of this, there there are cultures that you find yourselves in and you have to figure out how you operate, how you move, how you handle, how you interact with, when you make stands, when you allow things to when you let things roll off your back. This is what you see here is that they were almost immediately sought to be influenced. And you're gonna see a couple of ways specifically that Babylon tried to cause them to be Babylon not just on the outside but on the inside. And the first one is the first way that they tried to influence Daniel and his three friends is by renaming them. You see here in the very next verse, in verse, chapter 1, verse 6, it says this, "...among them, these people who were brought from Judah to Babylon, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names." Daniel he named Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego, so he got the short stick, because that's a tough name to be named, Abednego. Try, try spelling that one like you your in kindergarten, no, he wasn't in kindergarten here, but how do you spell your own name? I have no idea. Right. But they brought them to Babylon, and they renamed them. And for a Jewish person at this time, your name was significant. Actually, the word for soul is Shem. And the word for name is, is I'm going to get this right, hold on. The word for name is Neshema. Because at the core of what your name was, it was a window into your soul. Which is why so often when God meets someone and he changes them, he renames them in the Bible. If someone like Abram becomes Abraham... Jacob, which name means deceiver, becomes Israel, which means wrestles with God. At one point, this woman Naomi goes through incredible loss and she renames herself Mara. Simon becomes Peter and Peter means rock and Jesus says, upon this rock, upon this Peter I will build my church. There is this deep connection to a person's name and so one of the things that Babylon does is they renames them. I would say that if you are not intentional, you will find yourself renamed today. You know, I believe that when someone places their life and believes that Jesus came for them and died for them, they place their life and faith into him, that it changes you from the inside out on a soul level, like it says here, like their soul and name. Like on a soul level, you are fundamentally changed. And that is your your defining thing about your life. That is your defining identity. That is who you are. Your name is in Christ. Your name is set free. Your name is hope-filled. Your name is missional. Your name is new. And I think that at times we can go through life and that renaming by God to us, it leaks out of us. We begin to believe other names. Like consumer, consumer but your name is not consumer. You know, there are other names that, you can be, that people use for you. Not enough. People can rename you that you have need, that you have lack. Let me ask you a question. It's hard to do this in a room full of people, you know, kind of crowded room. You know, a lot of people had to park in the back parking lot. People had to like boop other chairs. It's hard to do this in a room like this but is there something that God says is true of you that you have a hard time believing? Is there something that Jesus has permanently and eternally defined you as, that at your core, you don't believe? That is where I believe, if you're not careful, you will be renamed. I was watching an interview yesterday of Jerry Seinfeld and Jimmy Fallon and two comedians, if you don't know who they are. And they were talking about, these are incredibly successful and famous funny people, right? And they were talking about how every time before the curtain opens, they feel unfunny. Like, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to do my thing, and no one's going to laugh for this whole time. And how, like, inadequate they feel. And these are some of the most successful, well-paid, richest comedians on the planet. And I've never resonated more deeply with a famous person, I think, in my life. Because I tell you, before I come onto this stage every week, before I walk up these steps, before I stand here in that, you know that awkward moment when the video's playing, you can kind of see me, but I act like you can't? You know that moment? Like, in that moment, let's be honest. In that moment, as I stand here, incredibly inadequate for that moment. What am I doing? Why am I on this stage? Like, I have my own flaws. I have my own stuff. I have my own junk. Why would I possibly stand on this stage? Why would I be here? Because Jesus has named me called. So no one else can rename me. That's why. He calls me to this. Not a doubt in my mind that this is what he's called me to do with my life. That's the only reason why I can come up here. And no one and nothing can rename me. So what is that for you? What does Jesus name you? The second thing that they tried to do beyond renaming them is test their convictions in the book of Daniel. For the rest of the book of Daniel, they're going to test their convictions over and over and over again. Even in that first passage, it said that they gave them food and wine from the king's stores. In the very next verse, in Daniel 1.8, it says this. It says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine, so he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Isn't that funny? He resolved not to do it. I'm not going to do this no matter what. And then he says, may I have permission not to? We'll get to that more in a second. But I don't know what it was about the food and the drink that made it defile Daniel. Different biblical scholars say that it was offered to Babylonian gods. Others say it wasn't culture, like, like uh, it wasn't... Kosher, sorry, it wasn't kosher food. I don't know what it was about this food and drink that made Daniel feel like it was going to defile him and why he had to feel like he could do fruits and vegetables but not meat. I don't know. What I know is that he felt like it was going to defile him, and so he wouldn't eat it. What's fascinating about this is how often Daniel was put into offensive situations. You know, here a couple times it says palace master, but that word master here was synonymous with the word eunuch. Because what happened in this time, at this culture, when someone was a servant in the palace, they would, I'm going to say this word once, castrate them, I'm going to say cut from now on. That's an awkward word to say in a large room full of people. And they would cut them so that they were not a threat or a temptation for their wives and daughters. And so this palace master was, had probably been cut, which means Daniel and his th- three friends had probably been cut in that same way. Obviously, incredibly offensive. Renamed them, incredibly offensive. Taken them from their homes, incredibly offensive. Brought them to Babylon against their will, incredibly offensive. And at no point do we see Daniel ever putting up a fight. When Daniel is asked to do something that he deems as wrong, as against God's will for his life, as sinful, he immediately resolves, I'm not going to do that. And so Daniel, with his convictions, differentiates between offensive and sinful, which is an incredibly hard thing to do then as it is now. But this is what Daniel does. I mean, the rest of the story, over and over and over again, their convictions are tested. You have in uh, Daniel 3, 36, there's this, his, not, Daniel's not here at this time, but his friends are, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah, and they're told this, they said, Whoever does not bow down and worship shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There's this large statue of Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon, and they put it in front of them, and they say, whoever does not bow down will be thrown into the fire. We just sing about this. There's another in the fire. They don't make a, they don't make a big stink. They don't yell and scream. They just, as respectfully as possible, stand there and refuse to bow down, offensive or sinful. And so they're thrown to the fire, and the scripture says that the, the angel of God was there with them. Scholars believe it was a presence of Jesus there in the fire. That's that other in the fire we were just singing about. Later on, there's a people are uh, jealous of Daniel because he's risen to the second most influential person in the entire world. And so they know that his character is so unimpeachable that they can't possibly bring him down. So what they do is they convince King Darius to make a rule for, thir- for a small period of time that no one can pray to any deity or person other than himself. It says so in Daniel 6, 6-7. through So the presidents and satraps conspired and came to the king and said to him, O oh, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents Of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors, we agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an interdict that whoever prays to anyone, divine or human, for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the den of lions. And so, what does he do? What does Daniel do? He continues to pray that his convictions are tested and he's thrown into that den of lions. And we'll talk about that more a little later. And so the first thing they do is they try and rename them, question their identity in God. The second thing they do is they test their convictions over and over and over again. All right, you say you have convictions. What are you going to do about it when this comes up, when this comes up, when this comes up? How are you going to handle this? How are you going to handle that? This sounds a lot like our daily life, doesn't it? Where it's easy to be renamed into something that God says we are not or to not acknowledge something that God says we are. It's easy to feel like our convictions are being tested. We're trying to decide, is this offense or is this sinful? Do I find this offensive, or am I being asked to do something that is sinful? And it's like, and it's like you have to walk this walk, and you have to navigate, and it feels like a landmine at times in culture and the days that we live in. It's like, how do we even take a step forward? Do we, what, what's the right thing to do? And so for that, we look at how Daniel, what Daniel did do, is that he did influence Babylon. How did he do that? How did Daniel influence Babylon? He went from slave, boy, maybe 13, 15 years old, to second most influential person on the planet, second in charge of the most dominant empire on the planet. How did this happen? What did he do? How did he manage this? How did he be able to stand by his convictions, but also rise in influence? What an incredible balancing act that is. I think the first thing that you'll see here in the story of Daniel is that he practiced deference. Deference is respect, esteem, ingratiating regard for another. I was a pastor in Lowell for many years, and in Lowell there's a lot of Southeast Asians. And so you learn, like, I learned this very traditional uh, Kamai greeting, which is chalm ripsua, okay? And when you greet someone, if you put your hands together above your eyes and you say "Cham ripsua, you're saying, I I raise you above myself, I defer to you, I esteem you, it's this way of showing esteem to people in the Khmer culture that you you, you learn over time when you, you minister in environments that are predominantly Southeast Asian. And it's just like this very upfront when you meet someone way of greeting and saying, oh, I deeply respect you. We don't really have something that is parallel to that. In our, in our culture, and when we interact with someone, we first see one. But Daniel and his friends, over and over again, did this exact thing. They were deferential. These people who were incredibly offensive to them. You know, when, when, they, when he resolved not to eat the food, he didn't say, I'm not going to eat that food, you can't make me, you have to put me to death before I eat that. No, no, he says, he asked permission to not eat it, even though he would already resolved that he wasn't going to when Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were told they have to bow down to this large statue of Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't kick and scream. They didn't yell. They just stood when they were told to kneel. They just stood in their convictions. They didn't make a big thing about it. They didn't as respectfully as possible. In the chapter 2 of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar has this incredibly impossible request he makes of Daniel. He says that if he has this dream, and he wants Daniel to interpret it for him. But he knows that if he tells people the dream, this person could make up any like, interpretation they want of what the dream means. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, I, you have to interpret my dream, and you have to tell me what my dream was, because I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> right. And so Daniel's like, uh, and if you don't, tell me what my dream was. He's like, I remember it, but you have to tell me what it was. Okay, that's incredibly hard. And then you have to interpret it. And if you don't, I'm going to put you to death. And Daniel's like, excellent. That's good news. Thank you. I'm, I'm so happy about that. And so then, he falls back into his community. He prays with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. God gives him what the dream was and gives him the interpretation of it. And it's incredibly bad news for Nebuchadnezzar. He's telling him that his kingdom's going to end relatively soon. And so Daniel goes to King Nebuchadnezzar and is like, you're a jerk, you brought me here, you threatened my life, and now you're gonna get it. No, not at all, not at all. What Daniel says is, Oh, that this would happen to any other person than you, my king. Incredibly respectful to this person who has, been incredi- who has denied his humanity, who has renamed him, who's brought him from his family. Incredible deference. One time in an interview, the founder and COO of Chick-fil-A was asked how his faith impacts his life. And he says, in every way possible. And he was asked, does it impact your view of LGBTQ? And Dan Truett Cathy says, guilty as charged. Because of this interview, people began uh, to protest Chick-fil-A's across the country. And they put on these signs, guilty as charged. And they were standing outside of Chick-fil-A's uh, for weeks. And this became national news. I remember this at all. And actually a different group organized a Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day, where they, or if you appreciate Chick-fil-A, go, and, every, and it was like the highest sales day ever in Chick-fil-A history. And at no point did Dan Truett Cathy condemn the protests or support the Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day. But what he did do is reach out, he called... On, he got the number of the president uh, and founder of a group called Campus Pride, which is an organization that organizes LGBTQ people on college campuses. And he got his number and he reached out and said, I just want to have a conversation with you. I want to talk to you about what's going on, what's going on in the news, what I've heard happens around Chick-fil-A's, what, what you're doing. I just want to hear from you. And so he called the president and CEO of Campus Pride, a man named Shane Windemeyer, And Eventually, Shane says after the fact, he says, I did not want to call him back. It made me incredibly nervous to call this person. I had seen this person in the news. Like, I don't want to call Dan Kathy. But they had a mutual friend. A mutual friend encouraged him, No, 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 I know Dan. You should call him. So, Dan and Shane had a phone conversation. And and, and Shane talked about this later about how, in that initial conversation, his walls were all the way up. But the entire time, Dan was asking him questions, seeking to understand. What is it you're doing? Why is it that you feel so hurt? What have I done that, and they formed a relationship. Dan and Shane, they kept talking, they kept calling, they kept texting, and eventually Dan had Shane into his home. Let's let's, just talk for more than a phone conversation will allow. I'll fly you out. We can spend a couple days together. Let's just, I want to hear from you. I want to talk to you. And then they began to have this legitimate conversation outside of just the, the, the turmoil and the tension that their organizations were experiencing. Eventually, Dan invited Shane to his luxury box at the Chick-fil-A Bowl. You to know, see a picture here. That is Dan Kathy, and Shane Windemeyer. One is the founder and COO of Chick-fil-A. The other is the founder and CEO of Campus Pride. After the fact, outside. Dan Cathy didn't know this was happening, but Shane Windemeyer wrote an op-ed for the Huffington Post, and in it, it was, this is entitled, Coming Out as Dan Cathy's Friend. I'm going to read you a portion of it, if I can find it. It is not often that people, this is Shane Windemeyer's words, not often that people with deeply held and completely opposing viewpoints actually risk sitting down and listening to one another we see this failure to listen and learn in our government, in our communities, in our families, and I would add, in our churches. Dan, Kathy, and I would together try to do better than each of us had experienced before. Through all of this, Dan and I shared respectful, enduring communication and built trust. His demeanor has always been one of kindness and openness. Even when I continued to directly question his public actions and funding decisions, Dan embraced the opportunity to have dialogue and hear my perspective. He and I committed to a better understanding of one another. Our mutual hope was to find common ground if possible and to build respect no matter what. We learned about each other as people with opposing views, not opposing people. Shane Windemeyer goes on to say that Dan Cathy at no point apologized for his beliefs or, asked him to stop protesting Chick Fil A's. He, Shane Windemeyer says, had to both hold on to his beliefs and welcome me into them. He had to face the issue of respecting my viewpoints in life, even while not being able to reconcile them with his belief system. He defined this to me as the blessing of growth. He expanded his world without abandoning it. I did as well. In John one, Jesus described as the Word. In John one, says the Word became flesh. And then it goes on to say that the word was full of grace and truth. Now, when you hear that, it's the word, Jesus was full of grace and truth, you feel like, all right, he was 50% grace and 50% truth. But actually, the original language is, no, he was full of grace and overflowing, overwhelming to the tip-top of who he could be with grace. And he was full of truth. Overflowing, overwhelming to the tip-top of who he was with truth. Jesus, when he was here, was 100% full of grace and 100% full of truth. I think this story of Dan and Shane communicates an incredibly hard. Like, I'm nervous talking about it. I know this is a challenging thing to go into the real world and balance. How do you be full of 100% full of grace and 100% full of truth? It is incredibly hard. I think you have to be these next two things. i got three points, three ways that Daniel influenced Babylon. The first one was deference, respect, being full of grace and full of truth. The second one was Daniel's spiritual disciplines. Daniel 6 says this, Daniel 6.10. Although Daniel knew the document had been signed, this document that's saying that you couldn't pray to anyone but Darius for 30 days, he continued to go to his house, which had windows, in the upper room, towards Jerusalem, and get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise him, just as he had done previously. See, the thing that Daniel does that allows him to be deferential, that allows him to know when something is offensive or sinful, is he falls back onto his spiritual disciplines. What does he do? He has a rhythm, a rule of life. My life is going to be built on this spiritual rhythm. That included prayer. It said that included praising his God, a, 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 a Discipline of worship God, of just acknowledging God's goodness and his grace and his beyondness and holiness, and he had a rhythm of that. And then when the, when the push came to shove, he fell back into his community with Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Like he, so he had a rhythm to his life, he had prayer, he had worship, and he had community. And I think without these disciplines in his life, he wouldn't have been able to walk through the minefield of being an exile from Judah in Babylon. And lastly, the the third thing that he was able to bring to this was a level of dependence. Now, when a king tells you, tell me what my dream was and interpret it or I will kill you, that is, you're obviously dependent on God. And it can be easy to feel like, oh, well, he needed God in that moment. He had to be dependent. There was no other way forward. That's not exactly like life is for us. Maybe. Depends on the life you want to live. If you want to be a citizen of a faraway country that has impact here, you are just as dependent as Daniel was. If you just want to like pick your feet up and float along in culture, you could do that no problem without God's involvement. So what kind of life do you want to live? And I will tell you how dependent you have to be. So Dan, I feel like that one, that dependence one, it could have gone first, but it's so foundational to the others. You have to believe that you are truly dependent in order to practice those disciplines and be able to balance deference for others but still having convictions and what does it mean to be full of grace and full of truth what does it mean to love your neighbor how do we handle all of these things you have to have your disciplines and your dependence there in place when it comes to dependence and it comes to this thing i'm going to close with this there is this verse that i've used i've talked about before and i'll talk about it again it is how i understand moving and dependence on god in these ways and it's psalms 119 105 it's a very short verse. It's a simple one, but it's a profound one. It's like chess. It takes five minutes to learn, but the rest of your life to master. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word, this right here, this, this thing, this Bible, this inspired word, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And this is three promises. It's three promises in these short words. The first one is that your word is a lamp to my feet. If I had like a headlamp on and it was aimed at my feet, how far in front of my feet would it shine? A foot? Two feet? There will come times in your life when you are dependent on him and you're walking in your disciplines and his word is a lamp to your feet and it shines you six inches and you move six inches and it shines six more inches and you move six inches and there are times in your life when it's a light to your path and you can see out in front of you and you see the journey you're on and you see what it means to honor God in this season and you get to walk at a different speed than you did otherwise. The third promise, so the first promise is that when you don't know how to move forward, he'll give you at least six inches to move. Your second promise is that there'll be be times when he gives you a season at a time, and you get to walk at a faster rate than you did otherwise. And the third promise is this, that you'll have both seasons in your life. When you're in lamp to your feet season, it feels like it'll never end, but eventually it will. And when you're moving fast and life is good and it's easy and it's a light to your path moment, know that you should be in your disciplines and your dependence then because a lamp to your feet moment is going to come around the corner at some point. So may you be a people like Daniel. I grew up in a church, and I remember in Sunday school, we sang this song, Dare to be a Daniel. Anybody heard this song before, Dare to be a Daniel? Anybody? All right, a few Baptists in the room. Uh, I grew up in a conservative Baptist uh, church and we as a child sang the song Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known how it, it went. And it's a kind of a dope song in hindsight. Also a super weird song for five-year-olds to sing. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but that ability to dare to be Daniel, to have convictions, to hold on to them, but to balance them with 100% grace and 100% truth, to be so dependent on God that He will show you when and how to move, when and how to speak, is something we all need on a daily basis in our lives. So may you and I be people like Daniel, who don't allow Babylon to enter, but we, as citizens of a faraway country, influence the environment we find ourselves in. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that when we need you, you will show up. Thank you that you call us to be on mission. Thank you that we are your missional strategy for this earth. That you call us to work for the betterment of the cities to which you've called us. That you don't expect us to pick our feet up and move along. That you name us in ways that can't be renamed. This in reality, this is a difficult journey for us at times, but it is all about you, the work that you've done, what you've accomplished on your cross, the way that you've defined us and called us. So can we, God, through your power and through your spirit, be people like you, like your son Jesus, who was 100% grace and 100% truth? Can we be people of influence, in, even though we are citizens of a faraway country, that we feel homesick at times? that we feel mourning and loss in this place, and we're still defined by you. And that draws us closer to you, not further away. May we, God, dare to be like Daniel. We love you and we thank you. In your name, amen.